0: Hello and welcome to gamer to gamer I'm your host, James Intricasso. This is a podcast where I interview pros in the gaming industry about their careers and the games they love to play. Today's guest is Kenneth Height, Rudy Basso, the host of the d and podcast on this feed, and I sat down with Kenneth Height on Sunday of Gen Con to talk about his work creating Night's Black Agents, an awesome Spies vs. Vampires RPG that runs on the gumshoe engine his any award-winning column and podcast, his career path, and a few tidbits of great things that he has coming in the future. Please use the affiliate links on thetomeshow.com whenever you shop on Amazon or D&D Classics to help support the show. Just go to thetomeshow.com, click on the links in the show notes for this episode or any other, and then shop as you normally would. I'd also like to thank our sponsor for this podcast, noblenight.com, where Out of Print is available again. They have D&D and other tabletop RPGs. Any edition, any product. With Noble Knight, you can even sell back your old gaming products that you aren't using anymore. Let's hear a quick word from them, and then it's off to the interview. Noble Knight is an online game store. D&D, they got that more. And if you think out of print games are nice, Shop Noble Knight, cause they got the best price. And if you got gaming products to sell, then Noble Knight will buy them as well. So, so go to the place where games the bomb, and head over to NobleKnight.com. And don't forget to tell them that the Town Show sent you! All right, everybody, I'm here with my friend Rudy Basso, and I am also here with game designer, living legend, a level 50 NPC, Kenneth Hite. Kenneth, how are you today?
1: Well, it's Sunday of Gen Con, so I am uh, both exalted and miserable. That is (laughs) Sunday at Gen Con for those of us lucky enough to have um, uh, exhibitor duties and responsibilities there, plus panels and running around and doing uh, podcast recordings and uh, drinking all night with my closest personal 500 best friends.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. My legs feel like they're about to fall off and I am more exhausted than I ever have been, but it's a good tire. Yeah, I was yeah. saying I can't wait to go home and put on a sleep con of my own. Exactly, <laughs> yes.
1: A uh, intensive multi day seminar.
0: Yeah, yes, yes. So. Ken, we're really excited to have you here. Rudy uh, introduced me to Knight's Black Agents. Uh, We played a bunch at the con yesterday. Uh, So we're excited to be here talking with you, who designed one of the games that we love, and many other things. But let's take it all the way back. When did you first lay hands on a tabletop RPG, and sort of what did you play, what was your role, that kind of thing?
1: I first laid hands, uh, if you guys remember... Uh, or being young, I remember reading about. Um, when AD&D first came out, uh, the first book that was released was the Monster Manual. They released that before they released the Player's Handbook and before they released the DMG. So all there was for a while was this awesome book of monsters with a bunch of numbers that made no sense. <laughs> and I had not seen the the White box or Blue Book or any of the other precursors. For me, that was my first D&D book. And my friend Steve... Uh, owned it and he loaned it to me. You know, we went to the same uh, grade school and he loaned it to me over the summer. And so I took it home and said, Well, these are great. This is a magnificent thing, but it's missing some monsters. And so I started coming up and like uh, Edgar Ice Burroughs's Banth. I go, That's not in here. How can you leave the banth <laughs> out. So I write up the banth, and I sort of guess at what the numbers ought to be based on. You know, well, he's bigger than a lion. But he's not as butch as a griffin. So I get, and so I was sort of just guessing at what all the numbers were and putting in my own monsters. And then, so we get back to school, and it, it may have been like very early high school instead of very late grade school because we went to both the same, you know, sort of junior high and the same high school. But over the intervening period. Everyone had sort of figured out that there were more books, and someone had got a hold of the player's handbook, and my buddy Kevin had got a DMG, and so we all sort of put our bits together. And then another friend of mine had the the, the blue book, and so between all those cabalistic texts, we figured out what we were supposed to do, and we played <laughs> the hell out of Dungeons and Dragons, obviously, and we played sort of a blend of you know blue book when Mike was running, or uh, AD and D when uh, Steve or, or I were trying it. But uh, so we sort of D&D'd around. Uh, then my, uh, my youth pastor, uh, believe it or not, had Traveler in the old black book, little black box. And I was, you know, what is this? There's another one. And, it, <laughs> and right about at the same time, Isaac Asimov Science Fiction Magazine was running reviews of role-playing games because they were just coming out and being part of geek culture. John M. Ford, the great John M. Ford, was writing these reviews. And so he was revealing to me that there were yet other games that I hadn't seen yet. And so this sort of introduced me to this notion that you could basically do this in all kinds of different ways. And, you know, sort of not fast forward, because I ran a ton of Dungeons & Dragons in the interim, but in uh, 1981, when Call of Cthulhu came out, and I was a big Lovecraft reader already, and it was like, oh, so there's also, in addition to all these other great games, there is a perfect game. <laughs> and I kind of never looked back from there. Oh, so that and then I ran Call of Cthulhu all the way through the rest of high school, all the way through college, all the way into grad school. Um, If uh, one of my players uh, had uh, didn't have a like violent Lovecraft allergy, I'd probably be running it right now. But uh, (laughs) but I I, I've I've changed it up ever since. But CFC is what I've run more than any other game, probably. Wow.
0: So and it sounds like before you were ever even playing, you were a designer. Yeah, yeah. No, I've
1: been, I've been, I've been a game designer longer than I've been a game master, and I've been a game master for life since uh, my my co DM uh, David and I were running a D and D campaign in high school. And what would happen is we'd you know, you know we'd start after school, and then one of us would run down to the Seven Eleven and get slurpees or whatever. <laughs> and so it was uh, my turn to make the slurpee run. So I went down to Seven Eleven. I got Dave one, and I got me one. And I'm coming back. With our Slurpees, and I get to the table, and all the players' characters have Pegasi and Vorpal swords. <laughs> like, what happened? And Dave's like, I, I don't know. <laughs> I said, Well, alright, 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 all right, I'm back. And I said, Now, so you guys have a choice. You can we can rewind that, and you don't have Pegasi and Vorpal swords, or I start thumbing through the monster manual, and I find something that can take away your Pegasi and Vorpal swords. <laughs> But, you know, the first way, no one takes any hit point (laughs) loss. All right. (laughs) And so at that point, Dave was like, you should just run from now on. (laughs)
0: Uh, That's awesome. That's cool. So you were playing a lot, played a lot of Call of Cthulhu, which is a great game. Absolutely. What point do you decide, all right, I'm going to make a go of this, and I'm going to try to do this professionally, and what happens from there?
1: Well, what ha- I went to grad school, like I said, and fell in with a bad crowd of history majors. <laughs> um, and we started screwing around. We were in the science fiction and gaming club uh, at the University of Chicago, and we uh, we would just screw around and do alternate history sort of as a jazz riff, right? It's like, okay, I'm going to change the Battle of Omdurman. All right, now you have to say what happens at Fashoda, and we'd go around. And say, okay, all right, the French are doing this, the town. So, what happens in Ethiopia? And so we just sort of run alternate history free jazz, just us and the history majors, uh, which you know is as. Awfully nerdy as it sounds, but we loved it.
0: Quite a bit of rebels. Yes, yes, absolutely. (laughs)
1: Hey, you don't be bringing your economic econometrics over here, baby. (laughs) You roll hard. So anyway, um, we put together what eventually became an outline for GURPS Alternate Earths. Oh, nice! And uh, because Steve Jackson Games back in those days had a newsletter, which was a kind of paper blog, and they would send it around. And if you subscribe to their newsletter, you would find out what they were writing. And then in the newsletter, would also say what we're looking for. And one of the things they were looking for was, you know, uh, books and they gave you the little outline and here's how to do an outline And back. in, you, you, uh, we were all online because the university of Chicago gave everyone email addresses and online accounts to go into terrible links, you know, interfaces. And so we could parse out what the uh, requirements were to send something to the Steve Jackson game. So eventually we, put together the outline and we sent it in Steve Jackson games. And because it's, I'm in Chicago, I can just take the train up to GenCon every year, mm-hmm. you know, $20 Amtrak ride. Mm-hmm. I stay in, you know, piled like cordwood in uh, the hotel, Wisconsin run games for <laughs> chaosium to get in free and get my pizza taken care of. And it's just a, a blur. But what that meant is I could walk past the Steve Jackson games booth and say, Hey Steve, did you get my outline? And he would say, go away. kid. you bother me? <laughs> and this happened years and years and years. And eventually I said, hey, Steve, did you get my outline? And Steve says, um, I'll tell you what, after INWO, in in you know, in Nominate, or not in Nominate, uh, Illuminati World Order, the, the big card game, uh, Illuminati New World Order ships, I promise you I will look at your outline and I'll give you a final answer. I said, all right, fair nice. enough. So the Gen Con that it ships, I'm there, and I said, congratulations on Illuminati coming out. Hook me up with a set. I'd love to buy one. What about my outline? <laughs> and he says, all right, I'm going to send you an email uh, within the month or, you know, from this point. And if I don't, you can send me a mean email and say whatever you want. <laughs> all right. So I get an email back from Steve, and he says, uh, man, do I feel stupid. I had your outline filed with another outline that was terrible. <laughs> and uh, I really want to publish your game. How soon can you send us a manuscript? nice and so it's like well i don't know so <laughs> uh, myself and craig newmeyer and mike schiffer got together and we split up all the worlds and we started writing those and at about that same time because i had been going to gen con regularly and i was sort of wired in with chaos and i was wired in with a few other guys um my old one of my old call of cthulhu players from high school had gotten a job at iron crown enterprises and he was also a part of the circuit Chaosium is playtesting their game Nephilim, which is their adaptation of the French role-playing game, and they sent copies around to people in the industry to look at, and my buddy Don Dennis got it. He runs the On Board Games podcast now. Uh, He got a hold of it, and he said, oh, you know who needs a ridiculous game about playing invisible monsters that possess people down through history and run secret societies? My old Call of Cthulhu keeper, (laughs) Ken. He sends it to me and says... Can you make heads or tails out of this nonsense? And so I wrote about 11,000, 13,000 words of playtest feedback nice. about Nephilim and sent it to Chaosium because I knew them vaguely. And I get an email back from Greg Stafford. Greg, his own personal self, Stafford, <laughs> sent me, normal person, an email. Mm-hmm. And the email is basically, this is all excellent. Uh, we're going to print a bunch of it word for word in the core book. We're going to change things that you didn't like. <laughs> Uh, we're going to use your stuff, we'll pay you for that, what is the next book you're going to write for
0: us?
1: (laughs) (laughs) And this happens almost, maybe even the same Gen Con month as Steve gets back to me about GURPS Alternate Earth, so suddenly I've got two books that I'm (laughs) kind of on the hook for. (laughs) And so I wrote Secret Societies for Nephilim at the same time that we're putting together GURPS Alternate Earth for Steve, and those both come out 96-ish, I forget exactly when that is, or 94 maybe. And so that sort of starts me off in the industry. I On the basis of those credits, I get to go to industry parties. I met Robin Laws uh, when he was sort of a young rising superstar, and I was a crazy Robin Laws fanboy, like I, <laughs> like I still am. And uh, so on the basis of just that early, you know, popping open of that door, I started doing a, a lot more work for Steve. I wound up as the Nephilim line developer. Wow. And then... Um, over the course of that period, uh, i have been working as a temp and working for insurance companies and all kinds of miserable grinding hell jobs, <laughs> and my wife said, um, you hate your work and you're angry when you come home, and so that means you're angry half the time I see you, and that's terrible, but you love writing this stuff. Why don't you switch, get a job at the University of Chicago Press and start writing, and aim towards writing full time. And then you'll be home all the time, and I can see you, and you're never going to be angry, which <laughs> worked better than you'd think. Um, but so I did. I, I I quit my job at the insurance company. I went to work at the University of Chicago Press as an editor, picked up some more good life experience and skills, and then you know my freelance career kept on, keeping on. I uh, I got to write a ton and develop a ton of in nominee books for Steve. Uh, you know, ran. Rode the Nephilim line until Mythos bankrupted Chaosium the first or second time. And then, uh, you know, got onto the White Wolf train, wrote a bunch of uh, pieces of White Wolf stuff for them. And then eventually parlayed that, you know, variegated freelance career into a job writing the Star Trek role-playing game or co-writing it mm-hmm. with uh, Last Unicorn, which turned into a permanent job with them, which, you know, eventually has led me to the exalted pinnacle that I am now. Although not with pinnacle, with
0: (laughs) (laughs) right, right, yeah, yeah. Well, and Pelgrane, I mean, I think they're having a a banner con this year.
1: They seem to be. I think everyone is doing great at the show. I mean, I've heard, you know, Green Ronin is just cracking sales records left and right. (laughs) Uh, Everyone seems to just be, you know, unloading huge amounts of product. People are really eager to, uh, you know, come and and buy role-playing games and I assume board games and the rest of it are doing (laughs) great too. And so Robin and I have a joke, right? We'll be standing there at the booth, and there'll be some swarm of people, and they'll come out, <laughs> and they'll a lot of them, you know, a lot of them will be uh, young, or they'll be uh, girls, or they'll be, um, you know, ethnically diverse band of girls and young people running around like normal people. And then they'll come and they'll swarm out, and they'll buy a bunch of games, and they'll fanboy us, and we'll sign books, and they'll run away. And then Robin and I will turn to each other and say, oh, man, it's a shame the hobby is dying. <laughs> Here in this 65,000, 70,000 person convention that has basically broken the capacity of Indianapolis to hold buildings. Yeah. Oh, no, our hobby is dead. We're, we've chained ourselves to a sinking ship. So we're yeah, so it, Gen Con is always a great place to restore your psychic batteries if you get to meet the fans and you get to meet the people for whom you are sitting alone in a room the other 51 weeks of the year. Uh, and, you know, it's also simultaneously this sort of horrific, nightmarish sales march, you know, <laughs> standing on concrete floors, sleep deprivation, North Korean prison type experience. <laughs> so it's a weird, you know, uh, uh, bi-associative, uh schizophrenic blend of sensations. But the part where, you know, people are just buying tons of stuff,
0: mm-hmm. really
1: excited about products that you've made. I mean, my old job at the insurance company was... It was pretty miserable. This job is literally to make other people's lives more fun. Mm-hmm. That's my gig. Right. You know, if I've had a good day at the office, more people had fun. Right. That's way better than like 90% of jobs on the planet, 95% of jobs on the planet. So it, the Gen Gun is kind of when you're reminded of that. And yeah, we've, we've been doing uh, great guns. Uh, if Dracula Dossier had been at the show, we'd be doing slightly greater guns, <laughs> but you know, uh, we're, we're selling pre-orders of the show. People are able to, uh, pre-order the books, get the PDFs right away and get a little of that Kickstarter, you know, fever, even though if they may have missed the Kickstarter itself. So we're, we're having, uh, we're having a pretty good year. I, I'm writing and not, uh, uh anything to do with hard work. So. <laughs> Simon or Cat would know actually how we're doing in terms of you know year over year, but I think we're doing pretty great from the front lines. We're selling a lot of stuff.
0: Totally, totally. Let's actually talk a little bit about the Dracula dossier um, because, like you said, it's not here in print at the show, but if people are listening at home and want to check it out or want to pre-order, that kind of thing, uh, this is uh, Wade Rocket was on this podcast uh, a little less than a year ago, and he first talked about the Dracula dossier. Uh, and it sounds awesome, and it sounds like it ties into your uh, graduate history background yes, yes, quite it a bit. Does. Very yeah, much so. yeah. So let's talk a little bit about that and, and what that is, since that's one of your latest projects.
1: Yeah, the, the Dracula dossier is a—it's uh, an improvisational campaign for Knights' Black Agents, which is my vampire spy thriller game. Basically, I describe it at the booth as Jason Bourne versus Dracula, and this is the part where we really sort of say versus Dracula in it. So the shtick is that. Uh, In 1894, British intelligence uh, tried to recruit a vampire as an asset, Mm. as a spy, and uh, that attempt failed. (laughs) And that attempt was uh, written up afterward by Bram Stoker, and he wrote a lengthy after-action report Mm -hmm. uh, that, you know, taking all the diaries and letters from the time and compiling them. And when he turns it over to the British intelligence, the Naval Intelligence Division, uh, they look at it and they say, oh, this is horrible, this embarrasses us, it makes us look bad, uh, it reveals way too much about our plan. And so they just cut a bunch out of it, and they gave it back to him, and they said, you publish that as a novel, and that will be disinformation, and then no one will believe that we tried to recruit a vampire. Ah. And the name of the plan to recruit Dracula was Operation Edom, after the prophecy in the Bible about Lilith uh, will rest in the desert, et etc., 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 sort of matches. So Operation Edom sort of goes silent for a while. And then in 1940, uh, they're desperate to keep Hitler out of Romania because that's where the oil is. And he's going to use that to power the Axis war machine. And so there, we have to keep Hitler out of Romania. Anything. Any? Does anyone have an idea? And some old guy, you know, no doubt remembering the 1894 operation, an Edom Survivor says, well, if you're looking at anything, we have this guy in Transylvania, this, you know, friendly. We activate him and put him in charge of Romania He'll keep Hitler out. So they set up an SOE team and they parachute into Romania to make contact with Dracula and recruit him to take over Romania, right, to mount a coup d'etat. And that goes, as you might expect, badly. Uh, so the sole survivor of that mission annotates the first draft of Stoker's Dracula and puts it back in the archives. And so Operation Edom sort of continues along, staking vampires here and there, just doing their part. And then in 1977, MI5 discovers that there's a security leak, that information is traveling from London to Romania, into the Romanian securitate, and they're, how does this happen? Uh, and Operation Interim says, oh, that might have been the immortal Romanian that was wandering around London for six months unsupervised with the power to create immortal servants. Could that have been a thing? <laughs> and so they're put in charge of the mole hunt to find out who is Dracula's stay-behind mm-hmm. in the British intelligence community. And so they use the mole hunt to aggrandize themselves to more power. And then it, a little bit later, they say, oh, um, we found the mole, everything copacetic. And a medium-level analyst has been annotating, again, in that copy of Dracula, over and over, and he doesn't buy it, so he puts a flag into the MI6 computer system that if it looks like Edom is trying to reactivate Dracula as an asset, hmm. he'll, that document will be released into someone who is outside the Edom Charmed Circles. Who's not cleared for it. <laughs> so, uh, 1940, of course, there a huge earthquake in uh, Romania. In 1977, a huge earthquake in Romania. So, one of the trigger things on this uh, computer uh, file is that it will release if there's another big earthquake in Romania. Well, there was another earthquake in Romania in 2011. So sure enough, that triggers the release of the actual Dracula document to someone in G- GCHQ who is not cleared freedom. They start investigating All the annotations, they discover that Edom is an ongoing operation, that after 7-7, it recruited Dracula as a deniable asset. They're like, well, we've got an immortal, unkillable vampire spy who really hates Muslims. Sounds like an ideal plan for us. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And collateral damage, what's that? (laughs) She annotates that uh, uh, draft of Dracula again. So now it has three generations of annotations. Then she disappears and passes her fully annotated copy to the player characters. Mm-hmm. So now they have a full version of Dracula with all the bits that were cut out, restored, or wow. un- unredacted, as we mm-hmm. call it. Three generations of annotation, So they have a gigantic, basically, data handout. It's mm-hmm. a document dump. It's full of clues. <laughs> now, on the one hand, it's 400 pages, but it's a novel that guaranteed someone at the table has already read. Yeah. Right. right, right, yeah. And even if they haven't, they know the basics. They know Van Helsing. They know Dracula. They know Mina. They know uh, Lucy Western, They know the names. They know basically what the handout says. And then as they look at the individual annotations or at weird bits in the novel, they can then follow those up in the clues in the director's handbook, for the, which is the other book. So you get the novel with the annotations and the director's handbook. Each clue points to an NPC, a location, uh, an organization, uh, an object, and those all have different values. So an NPC might be innocent, they might be an Edom asset, or they might be a minion of Dracula. And the players pick what they're going to chase. The director, the GM, decides what kind of thing they've run into. And then those characters have themselves connections to other things in the story so you can basically follow your own trail of clues and retroactively that turns out to be how you followed it to the path that led to killing dracula Mm -hmm. because that's what you've got to do because he's out there just roaming around slaughtering people and claiming it's in the name of the war on terror Mm -hmm. and edom is not interested in the the truth coming out they still dream of controlling him
0: right and so
1: they have to be exposed or stopped dracula has to be destroyed and it's up to the player characters with a secret unit of MI6 on the one hand and Dracula on the other hand (laughs) to win and survive and follow all the clues. They follow them in any order. The GM then sort of, you know, know, responds to that by providing a specific meaning for the clue that they followed. Uh, So a location might be a cold location with nothing much going on, or it might be a warm location where there's a lot going on. So Carfax from the novel might be abandoned, uh, a ruin, or... It might be where Edom is currently operating out of because when they took it over in 1894, they just never gave it back. right? (laughs) So, you know, all kinds of possibilities, you know, everything has multivariant meanings. So you could literally replay the same campaign over and over and over and never get the same story.
0: Right. It sounds like a tremendous amount of work (laughs) on your part to create... Not only this this enormous 400 page document, but then a book to go along with it, and then advice for this is how you sort of make all this work together as a scenario for this role playing game that I also had to create.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This was a, 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 the idea came to me in, I want to say, 2011, while I was writing Nice Black Agents. Mm-hmm. It's like, what do I do as the right. big signature thing for Nice Black Agents? And I said, well, there's a text in Ufology called the Vero edition of. The Case for the UFO, again, and Morris Jessup wrote a book called The Case for the UFO. And allegedly, the Air Force paid, or the CIA or somebody paid a company of analysts to go through that book and annotate it. And the annotated edition was published by a fly-by-night publisher named Vero Press. Oh, and nice. you can buy the Vero Press or you can uh, edition or you can see it online in facsimile. And so it's secret annotations of this nonsensical text. I said, okay. let's do that not with a mediocre book about ufos let's do it but let's do it with the greatest vampire novel ever written dracula (laughs) and it doesn't take too long to look at dracula and say there's stuff left out Mm -hmm. we know that stoker for example cuts out the volcanic eruption at the end destroying castle dracula it's just gone and you're well why would you cover that up Mm -hmm. well it's because volcanoes and earthquakes are actually important and so (laughs) you just keep going back in and sure enough you can build this whole invisible substratum of the novel. Once you decide that spies are who's covering up because you have a spy game to tie it into, it doesn't, it's not that big a leap, but it did take a lot of work, like you say. So I've been thinking about it since 2011. I've been writing it or researching it since, you know, for about two and a half years, two years. Uh, Gareth Hanrahan, uh, my co-author, came on the project and of course, you know, saved the day a million times by providing just crazily great, uh, material for it uh, and then Kat Tobin sort of managed the whole process kept our Kickstarter from imploding uh, <laughs> on the ground uh, it wound up being like the fourth most successful supplement yeah. Kickstarter yeah. in RPGs oh, yeah. uh, uh, she wrangled all the artists she wrangled the maps she did all of the grubby tiresome part of publishing a book while Gar and I got to make up spy vampire games um, <laughs> and uh, so that was terrific But, yeah, it was just a nonstop backbreaking labor of love for, I think, all three of us Uh, for the better part of a year, certainly all three of us working together. And then individually, you know, going back, you know, like I say, to 2011, when I tried to sell Simon Rogers, the publisher on it, he says, well, I'd like it, but I want to make sure you can play every generation of Operation Edom straight through. You want to start by playing the actual characters in Dracula and then play their descendants, 1940, 1977, and now. And it's like, well, all right. (laughs) And that turned out to be a really good idea because by presenting that as a campaign frame, you Mm -hmm. give the GM, even if they never run that, the idea of the historical skeleton behind the game. Whereas if they'd had to piece it out of the hints in the book, it would have been a little more frustrating. And now they can say, "Well, what did happen in 1977?" They just turn to that section and say, "Well, that's what happens in 1977 in the sort of default campaign, right?" Right. right. And then they can ignore it if they want because the clues don't spe- don't spell it out.
0: Right. Right. But they can, you know, they can
1: play off that. And so that was that turned out to be a really great insight. So in a way, Simon is also responsible for the book taking the shape that it did, although his real contribution was to sort of back away and let Cat. Uh, Edgar and I um, uh, go crazy with it.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, and it seems like he is great at picking really good people and then saying, go for it. Yeah, yeah
1: that is, that is. I mean, obviously, you know, when you say, hey, Robin Laws, design me a new game engine, and he builds Gumshoe, and it's like, well, hey, Robin Laws, design me another Great game engine. Actually, first he says it, and Robin builds him the Dying Earth. Right, then he right. says, "Hey, Robin Laws, design me another great g- game engine." He builds him Gumshoe. Hey, Robin Laws, design me another great game engine. Builds drama system. He's pretty good at picking people. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. What can people do if they want to get their hands on the Dracula dossier? What's the best way to do it now that the Kickstarter has ended?
1: Uh, the best way to do it now is to pre-order it from Pelgrane Press. We are taking pre-orders here at the show. Very shortly, if it's not already, you can do that on the website. Go to thepograinpress.com and pre order it, just like we do all the pre orders that we've done. Uh, Once you pre order it, instantly you get the PDFs of the two core books that I talked about Dracula Unredacted and the Director's Handbook. And then uh, you can start playing right then. The books will, you know, we'll use the pre orders to determine the level of the print run, ship out the books. They'll probably wind up being in stores. Uh, there are dreams in the company of uh, October, so I'll say October, um, <laughs> knowing that printers are the devil.
0: Right, right. <laughs> but, uh, we,
1: we, we have other sort of stretch goals that got added on to the Kickstarter. We have to produce a book of scenarios called The Edom Files, which takes you from 1877, when George Stoker discovers that vampires exist mm-hmm. in the Russo-Turkish War, all the way down to um, uh, uh, campaigns, in the uh, immediately pre-adventure era, right with, with uh, uh, right after the fall of the Berlin Wall, Dennis Detwiller has written us a Three Days of the Condor riff. Wow! And so each one of those scenarios riffs on either a great piece of spy fiction or a great piece of vampire fiction. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so that's sort of the the conceit of the of that collection of stories. Then Gar is writing the uh, uh, Edom Field Manual, which is a in character in voice document that tells you how the British government trains SAS-style commandos to fight vampires. Yes. and then <laughs> we're combining it with also a sort of quick start uh, character generator for nice black agents, so you can sit down and play and say, "I want to play the explosives guy." Boom, you're the explosives guy. No, my, I mean, character gen in NBA is not uh, is not super uh, slow anyway. Yeah, no, but no. this is going to be like instantaneous, and ideally, sort of provide maybe a little more of a of a, of a mental, you know. Ignition key for the gumshoe system if people haven't played it. And then uh, I'm doing a book called The Thrill of Dracula, in which I'm going to watch 36-odd Dracula movies and discuss, because each of those riffs on the novel Uh in the way that you, the GM, would riff on the novel if Mm -hmm. you're running the Dracula dossier, And says, all right, here's how Todd Browning riffed on it. Here's how Terrence Fisher riffed on it. Here's how Francis Ford Coppola missed the entire point, (laughs) but also riffed on it. And so it's... They're using it in their ways to promote their agendas. Here's how they did that. Here's how you, the GM, can do that yourself. And provide it sort of a little handholding, a little example, and maybe a little inspirational filmography in a way. But also, you know, hopefully it'll be a nice little book for fans of Dracula.
0: Nice. So that
1: is something else that we've got. And then we've got a pack of cards that will have all of the NPCs, locations, objects, everything that I talked about. So you can just deal out your... Um, uh, Your your uh, your story, if you want, right? And you could either even use that with if you don't have the Dracula dossier, you can still you know Romanian mafia, you (laughs) they can come into play in anything, right? Mm -hmm. Or the the Catholic Church or whatever, right? They deal it out and it's like boom, there's my story. Oh, there you go. So we'll have a little thing to tell you how to sort of build an instant story using that card deck, (laughs) or how to use it in uh, Dracula dossier Mm -hmm. to sort of inform your play or whatever else, or at the very least let the player characters connect them on the wall with string yeah. <laughs> right, <laughs> to build right. the adversary chart, right?
0: <laughs> oh, that's funny. Yesterday we played a game with Billy White, yeah, um, and he had cards for the scenario he had written. You know, he was and they were locations, NPCs, right. that yep, kind yep, of thing. Yep. Um, and it was so great to see, like, okay, he did that, and then he gave us each a little meeple, and he was like, you're here, you're here, you're here, and just put us on top of the cards. Yeah, uh, And that was great. So it's great to see that you're going to be doing that with the Dracula dossier, because yeah. it sounds... Like a way bigger story than the four-hour game we played yesterday. Yeah,
1: yeah. It's in, in theory, it, it can be a massive campaign, a la a la massive Neoathotep, or a la you know the whole uh, giant series, or what our Underdark series. Or it can be just like every other Knights of Black Agents game—a really taut, tight thriller. You play it in six or eight sessions because mm-hmm. it turns out you're just that good at following the trail right to the right to the <laughs> top. And you know, it's all up to the uh, players and the GM how fast do they want to run it. And there's plenty of places to sort of put your foot on the gas and plenty of places to put your foot on the brake, or at least just change gears. Uh, because at any point, Edom can do something to throw sand in your gears. At any point, Dracula can say, you know what, I'm sick of people hunting me, and try and wipe you out. So all manner of uh, responses are built into the Dracula dossier. We each, for example, uh, in Night's Black Agents, we have something called the Vampyramid, right. which is an algorithm to determine how the vampires respond to you hunting them. Well... In Dracula Dossier, we gave Edom its own response pyramid, and we gave Dracula his own response pyramid. And Dracula's is way worse, (laughs) because the level three response, there's six levels, his level three response is to massacre civilians and blame you for it.
0: Whoa. (laughs) That's going to raise your heat. He's a medieval
1: badass, right? He's a medieval warlord. He doesn't care. Right. (laughs) And so this is like the level three response. This is where Edom is saying, no please don't do that. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so, that's amazing. And so like I say, you can enrich and and um, uh, complexify the game as much as you want or you can just make it a super fast, drivey type, you know, uh, speed thriller right. and then play it a million different times because there's a million different roads to Dracula.
0: Exactly. So what else are you working on that you can talk about right now? Is there anything that's in the pipeline that you're pumped about or excited about? Well, we had the big
1: announcement of the show. We're partnering with Art Green to do a standalone gumshoe core book called The Fall of Delta Green, yes. which will tie in with the new Delta Green role-playing game. It will be a gumshoe uh, adaptation of Delta Green the way that Trail of Cthulhu is a gumshoe adaptation of Call of Cthulhu. Mm-hmm. It will present, you know, soup to nuts, building Delta Green characters in the last decade that Delta Green was an officially sanctioned agency of the U.S. government, the 1960s. So it runs from 1961 and the inauguration of Kennedy to 1971 and the end of Delta Green as an official agency in the jungles of Cambodia. Right, right. right. And so that's the the arc right there. And again, you can play it as a whole campaign or you can play it just as bits and pieces of an adventure. So it's 1960s Delta Green uh, for the gumshoe system. And obviously, because it's gumshoe, it will be interoperable with Trail of Cthulhu or with Mm -hmm. Knights' Black Agents. So, you want to play spies in the 1960s? Suddenly, you have an awesome setting. (laughs) You want to play Trail of Cthulhu in the 1960s? Suddenly, you have an awesome setting. Exactly. And if you just want to play Delta Green, you have a great core book.
0: Exactly. And if you you know you describe Knights' Black Agents as Jason Bourne versus Dracula. How would you describe Delta Green then in the same scenario?
1: Well, Delta Green would be Mission Impossible versus uh, versus Cthulhu, Cthulhu right? Yeah, because yeah. they're a, they're a secret agency like the I.M. forces, deniable, mm-hmm. and we see in the show the show is way darker in the post you know Obama post Snowden era, yeah. right? Because it's like that they're out overthrowing governments all the time yeah. in the rest of the show, and then they stop that and they come home and they start illegally violating the civil rights of everybody. <laughs> it's like, conventional law enforcement can't pin this on him, so you need you to frame him for it. Like, what the hell? <laughs> <laughs> this is the good guy side? <laughs> but, you know, if you look at the old Mission Impossible and you and you don't play it for camp, you look at it straight on as a narrative of what the secret government is up to in the 60s, it's kind of weird. Plus... Yeah replacing face masks, that's Lovecraftian all, <laughs> all the way through it anyway.
0: Exactly.
1: So that, that'd that be sort of my, my fast level, but it's also, you know, uh, the Quiet American versus uh, Cthulhu or, you know, Platoon versus Cthulhu. Mm-hmm. There's right. so much either casting back in the 60s or narratives of the 60s, Green Berets, right? right Imagine, yeah. you know, John Wayne and George Takei out there in the jungle, but instead of Charlie, they're facing Nyarly.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that's what's so terrifying about it, and also... You know, it's, it's got the makings of something that could be super depressing. It's Vietnam and Cthulhu. Like, yeah. You could go crazy. Yeah. No, Very quickly. Delta
1: Green is not a up-happening, friendly, positive <laughs> setting, even if you're operating with the full sanction of the government. Right, yeah. And so it, we're definitely taking the aspect of the 60s that it's a time of chaos. It's a time when the world is out of control. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's certainly what people in the 1960s thought about the 1960s. Even, in some senses, the Sort of the revolutionaries and the and the hippies and the rest of them they deliberately said we have to destroy the world to remake it in right. this new good image that we have in our head of shea or or uh, flower power mm-hmm. or whatever um, and guess what destroying the world even in a good cause destroys the world all right so right. all you have to do is add a couple of you know haster cultists to that mix <laughs> and it's gonna blend right in uh, so you know you can do of foreign operations in Vietnam or Cam- or Cuba or the Congo, and you can do domestic operations because this is when the FBI is running COINTELPRO. Right. And they've got their agents within the civil rights movement. They've got their agents within all the domestic protest movements and all the domestic terrorist movements. So you can be infiltrating the Summer of Love. You can be infiltrating the March on Washington. <laughs> like any number of horrible things can happen to your, you know, Love of uh, love of God, love of country, and love of yourself in the <laughs> 60s, just like in the 20-teens.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. So uh, what are you playing right now? Like, I, It sounds like you're spending a lot of time writing, and you're yeah. probably spending a fair amount of time playtesting, yeah.
1: I would imagine. And researching.
0: Yes, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. But uh, in your free time, what games, you know, role-playing games, board games, any sort of tabletop video games, what are you playing right now that... Well yes. I have
1: run a I have run a role playing game session Monday nights ever since I moved to Chicago. Oh wow. Because I believe that if you are a role playing game designer, you have to run something regularly. Because otherwise you let just you start only writing for the voice in your head. Right. And then you become really fast you become a frustrated novelist. <laughs> right? You're like I'm going to I see how the game would go in my head. I know mm. that the characters will do what I say they will do and that's fine if you're a novelist, but it's a terrible habit to get into as a game designer. <laughs> and so I've been running, you know, constantly. I the Knights Like Agents uh, was play tested with that game group. Oh, great! Uh, they don't. I don't play test with them as often as Robin play tests with his group. But with Knights Like Agents, it's like I don't even know if filler works with Gumshoe. I, I have to try it first. Uh, but uh, right now, uh, what I'm doing is I'm playing Unknown Armies uh, with uh, my my core group and. It's set in the American West. Mm-hmm. Every year is an adventure. So we had a, an adventure set in 1877 at the Great Rail Strike and then an adventure set in 1878. Um, uh, and then an adventure set, uh, the invention of the film camera in 18, or the, of motion pictures in 1879, uh, the Great Bone War in 1880. Now they're in Tombstone, Arizona in 1881. <laughs> so every adventure moves forward a year and then that lets me have a big sort of historical scope campaign oh, yeah. because they can say we're going to uh, the the conceit is that they're a railroad building cabal and the the <laughs> one of them runs a railroad company and so they're building the railroad and we they can sort of visibly see the progress <laughs> of, really their, you know, uh, of, of their you uh, know of their global level actions while their cosmic level actions start just toppling heaven in on them (laughs) and so there's there's a really great field of running something with that kind of historical scope and i've done something like that with that game group many years ago and uh we wanted to do a western uh, because we had done a space game right before it so we wanted to sort of ground it a little more Uh, and so the the unknown armies western is what won the vote
0: nice so that's
1: what i'm running now and then in our free time as group we're playing a bunch of uh, uh war games um there's a Solid core of, of war gamers in our crowd, especially the new uh, card driven stuff from GMT. And I just got Fire in the Lake, the Vietnam counterinsurgency game, which obviously is research for Delta Green.
0: Right, right. And so
1: <laughs> I, I see a lot of Fire in the Lake sessions uh, in our future as well.
0: Nice, nice. So it sounds like history obviously has played a big part. You know, your, your game design. And one of the things that I love about your games is that they take place in these alternate histories, uh, you know, real world, but then they bring something else into it so that you're kind of already familiar with the setting, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, what is it that you love so much about taking history and, and twisting it, you know?
1: Well, I mean, part of it is just what you said. It gives people an in, mm-hmm. right? I mean, you can write the world's greatest backstory, you can write just reams of beautiful pages about Kragar the Destroyer <laughs> and his ro- his war against the Infandils or whatever. And at the end of the day, that's 100 pages of backstory that nobody read. Mm-hmm. right? So at the big reveal, Kragar the Destroyer was an elf. I don't care. But if at the end of the day, the big re- Genghis Khan was an elf, people were like, what? <laughs> I, I, do, I do not believe that. I would like to read more. Mm-hmm. And now you have them. You have them interested. And also, uh, it gives you a sort of a place to stand in the world, right? Well, I don't like Genghis Khan. He built Pyramids of Skulls. Right. Or I do like Genghis Khan because he practiced religious toleration. <laughs> now you have reasons to care, which you don't have. I mean, right. you know, the most brilliant backstories in the world, they, they, they don't connect to anything. I mean, Glorantha is a work of towering genius. But if you don't get into Glorantha, you're never getting into Glorantha. There's no point at which you say, oh, I get it. It's Achilles. Right. I mean, <laughs> Achilles is in there in some form, <laughs> but he's not named Achilles, so it's he's hard to find. Right, right. Um, and and one of great. Forgotten Realms is great, and both of them are hugely successful, but they're very hermetic. Oh yeah. You can't poke into it. And my reading and my, you know, sort of my intellectual hobbies are historical and, and, and spy fiction and, and things that are connected to their alternate histories, secret histories like Tim Powers' novels. And so just that ability to connect. That means I have to do less work, not more, Right. because there is an MI6. Mm -hmm. There is a Transylvania. There are volcanoes and and earthquakes (laughs) in Romania. All this exists. All I have to do is just find the pattern. Exactly. And that's just, you know, that's like seeing the Virgin Mary in your grilled cheese sandwich. I mean, that's easy. Everyone (laughs) does that.
0: Well, I know we're uh, running up on time here. Mm -hmm. Rudy, do you have anything? uh? no. Cool. Well, so uh, I guess as we begin to close out here, uh, what else would you like to talk about? Is there anything you want to plug? Obviously, you have a great, any award-winning mm-hmm. podcast. Yes, so yes. Ken talk about yeah, stuff yeah.
1: available wherever fine podcasts are distributed freely. Um, also, I'd like to plug my other any uh, mm-hmm. Ken writes about mm-hmm. stuff, which yes. I do every month from Palgrave Press. You get. Uh, it's supposed to be 4,000 words, but I tend to overwrite and make Cat and Simon very angry at me. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, four or five, maybe 7,000 if you get lucky. Cat <laughs> is really angry at me. And, and it's just about whatever topic I'm writing about. Uh, every other month, traditionally, has been Hideous Creatures Month, where I take a given Lovecraftian monster and I look at it from all kinds of different angles and try and provide fresh ways to play it and make it scary again. Because, of course, Lovecraft invented all these monsters in the first place because werewolves and vampires were all predictable. And now, we've been playing Call of Cthulhu for 40 years, some of us. Or, or by and large, or 35 years, some of us. And Deep Ones are a little predictable. <laughs> but I've got a Deep Ones hideous creatures, and you look like, at us. oh, look, all this stuff I didn't think of to make Deep Ones able to do, to make Deep Ones like, to play Deep Ones as, or present them as. And then, now they're scary again. Now they're fun. And then the other stuff, there's uh, rules sort of um, uh, boosts for Gumshoe. So if you want to have a martial arts based campaign, I did a Gumshoe Zoom on martial arts. There's a setting Kwas uh, for Bombay India, if you want to, or Mumbai India, if you want to run around there. Uh, inside look at Lilith or the Nazi uh, uh, Glocka Bell, the sort of secret anti-grail of, of the Third Reich. Uh, so it's just whatever I'm thinking about, I put into a Gumshoe Zoom. Some of them are campaign frames, uh, Moon Dust Men, where you play. Uh, crash retrieval guys working for the secret uh, UFO cover up group of the Air Force
0: Ooh, nice. in 1978.
1: <laughs> uh, School of Night, where you're playing Christopher Marlowe and his buddies fighting demons and Spaniards for right. the queen, <laughs> uh, with sorcery and, uh, and, and poetry. And <laughs> of course. So there's, you know, sort of, it's just whatever I come up with and I, I put it out there. And you can subscribe to it uh, for, I think it's twenty four ninety five. dollars uh, and then every month you get it in your email or you can buy the individual singles. If you're like, well, I like the idea of playing Christopher Marlowe and a bunch of <laughs> poets, but I'm not sure I need to run a bunch of Cthulhu monsters. Cause I don't play Cthulhu. You can just buy the individual singles on the website. And you know, those are like two or three bucks. So that's, you know, that seems like a, a bargain to me.
0: Right. Right. Uh,
1: and so that Ken writes about stuff is if you were a fan of suppressed transmission back in the way, this is kind of the successor to that where I'm just, being paid to rattle on like a crazy person.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And it's great. Uh, It's any award winning and it's, you know, in my humble opinion, I love Ken writes about stuff. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, and you guys should check out the podcast. Ken and Robin talk about stuff. If you want to get, uh, Robin D. Laws and, and Ken uh, talking about some great things, riffing on each other, and uh, possibly getting hints about what's coming up next in both of these Giants careers. So, it's uh, it's really great. And if people want to follow you on Twitter or anything like that, what's the best way right. social media-wise? Social
1: media-wise, follow me on Twitter, at Kenneth Height, or Facebook. I'm Kenneth Height on Facebook. I'm the uh, uh, you know the guy who looks like a game designer. Um, and, right. <laughs> and, and, and trust me, you just go back in my feed You'll find gratuitous plugs for my work. You'll know it's the right one. Not the poor Kenneth Hyde who runs a hardware store in Lawrence, Kansas. Who right, Who right. shows up on my Google searches every now and again. And I imagine must hate the living mention of me at this point. Uh, but, yeah, it, it, Facebook and uh, Twitter, I'm relatively active. Google Plus, uh, the, the, the weird Gattaca interface always throws me. But I try and put stuff up there uh, that's sort of really strongly game relevant. Because I know there's a big gamer crowd on Google Plus. So I, 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 I don't feed them as well as I ought to, but I, I, I throw something to them every now and again. Uh, and it's again, it's Kenneth Hyde on Google+. Plus. So sure. look at those. Uh, I've got a live journal because I'm very, very old and love emo unicorn poetry. Uh, <laughs> so you know, go to princeofcairo.livejournal.com if you want to find, find sort of the scattered remnants of my once-storied blogging career. Yeah, but you know I'm on Twitter. If, you know If you're awake during Vladivostok time, that's when I'm there. So oh, nice. go ahead and follow me.
0: Nice, nice. And we will link everything that we've talked about, all the various game systems, and uh, your podcast, your columns, your social media handles will all be over at thetomeshow.com. So if people want to get it all in one place, they can hook, head there, look at the show notes for this episode of Gamer to Gamer. Kenneth, thank you very much for being here today. Oh, no,
1: thank you, James. It's been terrific. And thanks, Rudy.
0: Yeah, yeah absolutely. So. That's it. (laughs) People, if you have a question or comment about the show, you can reach out to me on Twitter at James Intricasso. That's at J-A-M-E-S-I-N-T-R-O-C-A-S-O. Or you can go to the Tome Show's website, thetomeshow.com. And a quick shameless plug for me, check out my blog, which is all about Exploration Age. It's the fifth edition world I'm building over at worldbuilderblog.me. And also you should check out Rudy on Twitter. He's at Basso. R-U-D-Y-B-A-S-S-O. And check out his YouTube channel where he and his brother, also a host of the D&D VNG podcast, play a lot of video games and talk about them. It's called Game O'Clock, and it's linked in the show notes for this episode over at thetoneshow.com. Okay, everyone, thanks for listening, and thanks to Ken for being on the show. Also, many thanks to Jeff Greiner, Wade Rocket, Rudy Basso, and Sam Dillon. Don't forget to go to thetoneshow.com and use the affiliate links whenever you shop on Amazon or D&D Classics to help support the show. Remember, never give up. Life is a game, and eventually, you've got to roll a 20.